Chapter Six of Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk, by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Six. Plato College, Minnesota, is as earnest and undistinguished as provincially dull and pathetically human, as a spinster missionary. Its two hundred or two hundred and fifty students come from the furrows asking for spiritual bread and are giving a Greek root. Red brick buildings designed by the architect of county jails are grouped about that high bare cupola-crowned gray stone barracks, the academic building, like red and faded blossoms about a tombstone. In the air is the scent of crab-apples and meadowy prairies, for a time but soon settles down a winter bitter of the learning of the Reverend S. Alcott Wood, D.D., the president. The town and college of Plato disturb the expanse of prairie scarce more than a group of haystacks. In winter the walks blur into the general whiteness, and the trees shrink to chilly skeletons. And the college is like five blocks set on a frozen bedsheet. No shelter for the warm and timid soul, yet no windy peak for the bold. The snow wipes out all the summertime individuality of the place, and the halls are lonelier at dusk than the prairie itself, far lonelier than the yellow-lighted jerry-built shops in the town. The students never lose, for good or bad, their touch with the fields. From droning classrooms of victims of education see the rippling wheat in summer and in winter the impenetrable wall of the sky, footsteps and quick laughter of men and girls furtively flirting along the brick walls under the beautiful maples do make Plato dear to remember. They do not make it brilliant. They do not explain the advantages of leaving the farm for another farm. To the freshman Carl Erickson, descending from the dusty smoking car of the M&D in company with tumultuous youths in pinhead caps and enormous sweaters, the town of Plato was metropolitan. As he walked humbly up Main Street and beheld two four-story buildings and a marble bank and an interurban trolley car, he had at last an idea what Minneapolis and Chicago must be. Two men in sweaters adorned with a large P, athletes, generals, heroes, walked the streets in the flesh, and he saw it really was there for him, the college bookstore, whose windows were filled with leather-backed treatises on Greek logic and trigonometry, and finally he was gaping through a sandstone gateway at four buildings, each of them nearly as big as Jerolium High School surrounding a vast stone castle. He entered the campus. He passed an old man with white side whiskers and a cord on his gold-rimmed eyeglasses, an aged old man who might easily be a professor. A blithe student with YMCA reception committee, large on his hat-band, rushed up to Carl, shook his hand busily, and inquired, Freshman old man, got your room yet? There's a list of rooming houses over at the Y.M. Come on, I'll show you the way. He was received in Academia, in Arcadia, in Elsium, in fact, in Plato College. He was directed to a large but decomposing house conducted by the widow of a college janitor and advised to take a room for a dollar seventy-five a week for his share of the rent. That implied taking with the room a large, solemn roommate, Fresh from teaching country school, a heavy, slow-spoken, serious man of thirty-one named Albert Smith, registered as A. Smith, 
and usually known as Plainsmith. Plainsmith sat studying in his cotton socks and never emptied the wash-basin. He remarked during the first hour of their discourse in the groves of Academy, I hope you ain't going to bother me by singing and skylarking around. I'm here to work, bub. Smith then returned to the large books which he was diligently scanning, that he might find wisdom. While Carl sniffed at the brown-blotched wallpaper, the faded grass matting, the shallow standing wardrobe, he liked the house, however. It had a real bathroom. He could, for the first time in his life, splash in a tub. Perhaps it would not be regarded as modern today. Perhaps the feet soles would disdain its honest tin tub, smeared with a paint that peeled instantly. But it was elegance in the Hesperides compared with the sponge and two lard pails of hot water from the Erickson kitchen reservoir, which had for years been his conception of luxurious means of bathing. Also, there were choicer spirits in the house. One man who pressed clothes for a living and carried a large line of cigarettes in his room was second vice president of the sophomore class. As smoking was dourly forbidden to all Plantatonians, the sophomore's room was a refuge. The sophomore encouraged Carl in his natural talent for cheerful noise while Plain Smith objected even to singing while one dressed. Like four of his classmates, Carl became a waiter at Mrs. Henkel's student boarding house for his board and two dollars a week. The two dollars constituted his pin-money, a really considerable sum for Plato, where the young men were pure and smoked not, neither did they drink, where evening clothes were snobbish and sweaters thought rather well of, where the only theatrical attractions were weak-stand melodramas, playing such attractions as Poor But True, or the Reverend Sam J. Patkins' celebrated lecture on the Father of Lies, annually delivered at the I.O.O.F. Hall. Carl's father assured him in every letter that he was extravagant. He ran through the two dollars in practically no time at all. He was a member in good and regular standing of the informal club that hung out about the corner drug store, drink coffee, soda, and discuss athletics and stare at the passing girls. He loved to set off his clear skin and shining pale hair with linen collars. Those soft roll-collar shirts were in vogue. And he was ready for any wild expedition, though it should cost fifty or sixty cents. With the sophomore second vice-president and John Terry of the freshman class, usually known as the Turk, he often tramped to the large neighboring town of Jamaica Mills to play pool, smoke turkey cigarettes, and drink beer. They always chorused Plato songs in long-drawn close harmony. Once they had imported English ale out of the bottle, and carried the bottles back to decorate and distinguish their rooms. Carl's work at the boarding-house introduced him to pretty-girl students, and caused him no social discredit whatever. The little college had the virtue of genuine democracy, so completely that it never prided itself on being democratic. Mrs. Henkel, proprietor of the boarding-house, occasionally grew sarcastic to her student waiters as she stooped red-faced and loosened of hair over the range. She did suggest that they kindly wash up a few of the dishes now and then before they went gallivanting off. But songs arose from the freshmen washing and wiping dishes. They chucklingly rehashed jokes. They discussed the value of the classical course versus the scientific course 
While they waited on table, they shared the laughter and arguments that ran from student to student through Mrs. Henkel's dining-room, a sunny room bedecked with a canary, a pussycat, a gilded rope potteret, a comfortable rocker with a plateau cushion, a garland stove with nickel ornaments, two geraniums, and an oak-famed photograph of the champion plateau football team of 1899. Carl was readily accepted by the men and girls who gathered about the piano in the evening. His graceful seeming body, his puppyish awkwardness, his quietly belligerent dignity, his eternal quest of new things, won him respect. Though he was too boyish to rouse admiration, except in the breast of fat, pretty, cheerful, fuzzy-haired, candy-eating May Thurston, May so influenced Carl that he learned to jest casually, and he practiced a new dance called the Boston, which May had brought from Minneapolis. Though his arrival to the waltz and the two-step, the new dance was ridiculed by everyone. He mastered all the savoir-faire of the boarding-house, but he was always hurrying away from it to practice football, to prowl about the plateau powerhouse, to skim through magazines in the YMCA reading-room, even to study. Beyond the dishwashing and furnace-tending set, he had no probable social future, though everybody knew everybody at Plateau. Those immaculate upperclassmen, Murray Cowles and Howard Griffin, never invited him to their room in a house on Elm Street with a screen porch and piano sounds. He missed Ben Rusk, who had gone to Oberlin College, and Joe Jordan, who had gone to work for the Jorleman Specialty Manufacturing Company. Life at Plato was suspicious, prejudiced, provincial, as it affected the ambitious students, and for the weaker brethren it was philandering and vague. The class work was largely pure rot, arbitrary mathematics, antiquated botany, hesitating German, and a veritable military drill in the conjunction of Greek verbs conducted by a man with a non-com soul, a pompous, sandy-whiskered mannequin with cold eyes and a perpetual cold in the nose who had inflicted upon a patient world the four-millionth commentary on Xenophon. Few of the students realized the futility of it all, certainly not Carl, who slept well and believed in football. The life habit justifies itself. One comes to take anything as a matter of course, to take one's neighbors seriously, whether one lives in Plato or Persia, in Mrs. Harnickle's kitchen, or a forecastle. The Platonians raced toward their various goals of high school teaching, or law, or marriage, or permanently escaping their parents. They made love, they were lazy and ate, and swore off bad habits, and had religious emotions, all quite naturally. They were not much bored, rarely exhilarated, always ready to gossip about their acquaintances, precisely like a duke or a delicatessen keeper. They played out their game, but it was so tiny a game so played to the exclusion of all other games that it tended to dwarf its victims and the restless children such as carl instinctively resent this dwarfing they seek to associate themselves with other rebels carl's unconscious rebel band was the group of rowdyish freshmen who called themselves the gang and loafed about the room of their unofficial captain john terry nicknamed the turk a swarthy large-featured youth with a loud laugh, a habit of slapping people upon the shoulder, an ingenious mind for deviltry, and considerable promise as a football end. Most small local colleges, and many good ones, 
Have there gangs of boys who presumably become honorable men and fathers, yet who in college days regarded as heroic to sneak out and break things, and as humorous to lead contrary-side girls astray in sordid amours? The more cloistered the seat of learning, the more vicious are the active boys to keep up with the swiftness of life forces. The Turks gang painted the statues of the memorial arch. They stole signs. They were the creators of noises unexpected and intolerable during small, quiet hours of moonlight. As the silkworm draws its exquisite stuff from dowdy leaves, so youth finds beauty and mystery in stupid days. Carl went out unreservedly to practice with the football squad. He had a joy of martyrdom in tackling the dummy and peeling his nose on the frozen ground. He knew a sacred aspiration when Mr. Bajorkin, the coach, a former University of Minnesota star, told him that he might actually make the team in a year or two, that he had twice as much chance as Ray Cowles, who, while Carl was thinking only of helping the scrub team to win, was too engrossed in his own dignity as a high school notable to get into the scrimmage. At the games among the gang on the bleachers, Carl went mad with fervor. He kept shooting to his feet and believed that he was saving his country every time he yelled in obedience to the St. Vitus gestures of the cheerleader or sang On the Goal Line of Plato, to the tune of On the Sidewalks of New York. Tears of a real patriotism came when, at the critical moment of a losing game against the Minnesota Military Institute, with sunset forlorn behind bare trees, the veteran cheerleader flung the horse Plato rooters into another defiant yell. It was the never-say-die of men who rose with clenched hands and arms outstretched to the despairing need of their college. Then, Lord, they hurled up to their feet in frenzy as Pete Medland got away with the ball for a long run in victory. The next week, when the University of Keokuk whipped them forty to ten, Carl stood weeping and cheering the defeated Plato team till his throat burned. He loved the laughter of the Turk. May Thurston's welcome experiments in the physics laboratory, and he was sure that he was progressing toward the state of grace in which he might aspire to marry Gertie Cowles. He did not think of her every day, but she was always somewhere in his thoughts, and the heroines of magazine stories recalled some of her virtues to his mind, invariably. The dentist who had loved her had moved away. She was bored. She occasionally wrote to Carl but she was still superior, tried to influence him for good, and advised him to cultivate nice people. He was convinced that he was going to become a lawyer, for her sake, but he knew that some day he would be tempted by the desire to become a civil or mechanical engineer. A January thaw. Carl was tramping miles out into the hilly country north of Plateau, he hadn't been able to persuade any of the gang to leave their smoky loafing place in the Turk's room, but his own lungs demanded the open. With his heavy boots washing through icy pools, calling to an imaginary dog, and victoriously running Olympic races before millions of spectators, he defied the chill of the day and reached Hiawatha Mound, a hill eight miles north of Plateau. Toward the top a man was to be seen crouched in a pebbly sunny arroyo peering across the bleak prairie, a lone watcher. Ascending, Carl saw that it was Eugene Field Linderbeck, a Plato freshman. That amused him. He grinningly planned a conversation. 
Everyone said that Jeanie Linderbeck was queer, a precocious boy of fifteen, yet the head of his class in scholarship, reported to be interested in Greek books quite outside of the course, fond of drinking tea and devoid of merit in the three manly arts, athletics, flirting, and breaking rules by smoking. Jeanie was small, anemic, and too well-dressed. He stuttered slightly and was always peering doubtfully at you with large and childish eyes that were made more eerie by his pale, bulbous forehead and the penthouse of tangled mouse-brown hair over it. The gang often stopped him on the campus to ask mock polite questions about his ambition, which was to be a teacher of English at Harvard or Yale. Not very consistently, but without ever wearying of the jest, they shattered him to find out if he did not write poetry, and while no one had actually caught him, he was still suspect. Jeanie said nothing when Carl called, "'Hello, son,' and sat on a neighboring rock. "'What's the trouble, Jeanie? You look worried. Why don't any of you fellows like me?' Carl felt like a bug inspected by a German professor. Oh, well, "'What do you mean, Jeanie?' "'None of you take me seriously.' You simply let me hang around. And you think I'm a grind. I'm not. I like to read, that's all. Perhaps you think I shouldn't like to go out for athletics if I could. I wish I could run the way you can, Erickson. Darn it. I was happy out here by myself on the mound, where every prospect pleases, and now here I am again, envying you. Why, son, I guess, I guess we admire you a whole lot more than we let on. Trip, old man. When you're valedictorian and on the debating team, and wallop Hamlin, you'll laugh at the gang, and we'll be proud to write home we know you. Carl was hating himself for ever having teased Jenny Linderbreck. You've helped me a thundering lot. Whenever I've asked you about that plain Greek syntax, I guess we're jealous of you. You, uh, you, you don't want to let him kid you. Carl was embarrassed before Jean's steady, youthful, trusting gaze. He stooped for a handful of pebbles with which he pelted the landscape, maundering, "'Say, why don't you come around to the Turk's room and get better acquainted with the gang?' "'When shall I come?' "'When?' "'Why, thunder, you know, Jeanie, just drop in at any time.' "'I'll be glad to.' Carl was perspiring at the thought of what the gang would do to him when they discovered that he had invited Jeanie. But he was game. "'Come up to a room whenever you can, and help me with my boning,' he added. "'You mustn't ever get the idea that we're conferring any blooming favor by having you around. It's you that help us. Our necks are pretty well sandpapered, I'm afraid. Come up to my room any time. I'll have to be hiking on if I'm going to get much of a walk. Come over and see me tonight. I wish you'd come up to Mr. Fraser's with me some Sunday afternoon for tea, Erickson. Henry Fraser, M.A. Yale, associate professor of English literature, was a college mystery. He was a thin-haired young man with a consuming love of his work, which was the saving of souls by teaching Lydicus and Comius. This was his first year out of graduate school, his first year at Plato, and possibly his last. It was whispered about that he believed in socialism, and the president, the Reverend Dr. S. Alcott Wood, had no patience with such silly fads. Carl marveled. 
Do you go to Fraser's? Why, yes. Thought everybody was down on him. They say he's an anarchist, and I know he gives fierce assignments in English lit. That's what all the fellows in his classes say. All the fools are down on him. That's why I go to his house. Don't the fellows, uh, kind of... Yes, piped Jeanie in his most childish tone of anger, his tendency to stammer betraying him. The k kid me for liking Fraser. He, he, he's the only teacher here that isn't p p p p a spit. Provincial. What do you mean by provincial? Narrow. Villergy. Do you know what Bernard Shaw says? Never read a word of him, my son. Let me tell you that my idea of no kind of conversation is to have a guy spring have you read on me every few seconds and me coming back with no I haven't. Ain't it interesting? If that's the brand of converse at Prof Fraser's, you can count me out. Jeanie laughed. Think how much more novelty you'll get out of roasting me like that than telling Terry he's got bats in his belly ten or twelve times a day. All right, my son, you win. Maybe I'll go to Fraser's with you sometime. The Sunday following, Carl went to tea at Professor Henry Fraser's. The house was Platonian without, plain and dumpy, with gingerbread gothic on the porch, blistered paint, and the general lines of a prairie barn. But the living room was more nearly beautiful than any room Carl had ever seen. In accordance with the ideal of that era, it had mission furniture with large leather cushions, brown woodwork, and tan oatmeal paper scattered with German color prints, instead of the patent rockers and carbon prints of Roman monuments which adorned the houses of the other professors. While waiting with Jeanie Linderbank for the Frasers to come down, Carl found in a rack on the oak table such books as he had never seen, exquisite books from England, bound in terracotta and olive green cloth, with intricate gold designs, heavy-looking but astonishingly light to the hand, books about Celtic legends and provincial junglers and Japanese prints and other matters of which he had never heard. So different from the stained textbooks and the shallow novels by brisk ladies which had constituted his experiences of literature that he suddenly believed in culture. Professor Fraser appeared, walking into the room after his fragile wife and gracious sister-in-law, and Carl drank tea with lemon instead of milk in it, and listened to bewildering talk and to a few stanzas, heroic or hauntingly musical, by a new poet, W. B. Yeats, an Irishman associated with a thing called the Gaelic Movement. Professor Fraser had a funny, easy friendliness. His sister-in-law, a Diana in brown, respectfully asked Carl about the practicability of motor-cars, and all of them, including two newly-come highbrow seniors, listened with nodding interest while Carl bashfully analyzed each of the nine cars owned in Plato and Jamaica Mills. At dusk, the Diane and Brown played McDowell, and the light of the silken-shaded lamp was on a print of a fairy Swiss village. That evening, Carl wrestled with the Turk for one hour, catch his catch-can on the Turk's bed and under it, and nearly out the window, to prove the value of Professor Fraser in culture. Next morning, Carl and the Turk enrolled in Fraser's optional course in modern poetry, a desolatory series of lectures, which did not attempt Tennyson and Browning, so Carl discovered Shelley and Keats and Walt Whitman, Swinburne and Rossetti and Morris. He had to read by crawling from word to word as though they were ice-cakes in a cataract of emotion. 
The elusiveness was agonizing, but he pulled off his shoes, rested his feet on the footboard of his bed, drummed with a pair of scissors on his knee, and persisted in his violent pursuit of the beautiful. Meanwhile, his roommate, Plain Smith, flapped the pages of a Latin lexicon or took a little recreation by reading the Reverend Mr. Todd's student's manual, that gem of the alarm clock, and water-bucket epoch in American colleges. Carl never understood Janie Linderbuck's conviction that words are living things that dream and sing and battle, but he did learn that there was speech transcending the barking of the gang. In the spring of his freshman year, Carl gave up waiting on table and drove a motor-car for a town banker. He learned every screw and spring in the car. He also made Jeanie go out with him for track athletics. Carl won his place on the college team as a half-miler, and viciously assaulted two freshmen and a junior for laughing at Jeanie's legs, which stuck out of his large running pants like straws out of a lemonade glass. In the great meet with Hamlin University, though Plato lost most of the events, Carl won the half-mile race. He was elected to the exclusive fraternity of Ray Cowles and Howard Griffin, Omega Chi Delta, just before commencement. That excited him less than the fact that the Turk and he were to spend the summer up north in the hard wheat country, stringing wire for the telephone company with a gang of Minneapolis wiremen. Oh, yes, and he would see Gertie and Jolman. She had written to him with so much enthusiasm when he had won the half-mile. End of chapter 6